Happy Friday the 13th, horror fans, and welcome to this week's episode of Megan's Murder Movies. I'm your host, Megan, and this week we are doing the 1980 Friday the 13th on this first Friday the 13th of 2023. Very excited to jump into this one. Such great history with this, such a classic, very iconic. Um, So without further ado, let's dive into Camp Crystal Lake with a summary. Crystal Lake's history of murder doesn't deter counselors from setting up a summer camp in the woodsy area. Superstitious locals warn against it, but the fresh-faced young people, Jack, Alice, Bill, Marcy, and Ned, pay little heed to the old-timers. Then they find themselves stalked by a brutal killer. As they're slashed, shot, and stabbed, the counselors struggle to stay alive against a merciless opponent. I can't remember when I watched this one for the first time. I had to have been like middle school and I remember like what like I remember the first time I watched it I wasn't really paying attention. It was probably like a sleepover or something and I was kind of half in, half out. And then when I fully watched it the second time there were like scenes that I remember, iconic ones. But I I guess I hadn't maybe stayed awake for the ending or whatever because I remember when I did my my second watch my first actual like pay attention watch the ending had me shocked it was the first movie I ever saw where the killer uh ends up being a woman and uh you know of course being very brutal with the kills and I just found it very interesting and kind of fell in love with the idea of Camp Crystal Lake when I first watched it um I really enjoyed the one I think it was like 2008 maybe it was later than that I can't remember when like the remake came out um like a few years ago got a few years ago it's 2023 it's 2008 was more than a few anyway um when they did the remake a while ago I actually really enjoyed that one I remember going to the seat the theater to see that the only Friday the 13th I've ever seen in the theaters was that one um but I would love one day to be able to see this as like a replay classic on the big screen um because I just think it would be phenomenal to see on the big screen the way it was intended. But without further ado, let's jump in to our cast breakdown. So first we will talk about Betsy Palmer, who plays Miss Voorhees. Betsy's an American actress who was known as a regular supporting film and Broadway actress, a television guest star, and a panelist on the game show I've Got a Secret. And then of course she later joined the Friday the 13th cast to play Jason Voorhees' mother. Next, we will talk about Adrian King, who plays Alice. And Adrian is an American film stage and voice actress. She was a child actor and made her film debut as Melinda in the television feature Inherit the World in 1965, before appearing in Between the Lines in 1977. She also was in Saturday Night Fever and Hair, portraying Alice in Friday the 13th as one of her better-known roles, and then she also reprised this role in Friday the 13th Part 2 in 1981, and then again in the fan film Jason Rising in 2021. Sadly, after appearing in the first Friday the 13th, she was really stalked aggressively. The man was eventually imprisoned, but sadly this experience prompted her to kind of be secluded, um, which is really sad that that ended up happening. 
She worked as a stunt performer and extra for the supernatural comedy film Ghostbusters in 1984. She reemerged doing voice acting and dubbing in the early 1990s, providing looping voices for a wide range of films, including The Night We Never Met, The Man Without a Face, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The Good Son, Wolf, While You Were Sleeping, Jerry Maguire, and Titanic. In 2009, she made her first on-screen appearance in nearly three decades in the independent film Psychic Experiment, followed by supporting parts in All-American Bully, The Butterfly Room, and then she's also the narrator of the audiobook The Final Girl Support Group, which is on my to-read list. I've been reading so much the last few weeks, and I've been really enjoying it. I have a inkling that I'm going to be spending a lot of money on books this year, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> um... So that's, yeah, that's on my, on my list. I hear it's very good. Maybe I've got Audible, so maybe I'll uh, get the audiobook version so that I can hear Adrian tell the story. Next, we have Harry Crosby, who is the character of Bill. Before his career in banking and private equity, Crosby gained show business experience at an early age by appearing with his father and family on various Christmas television specials from 1965 to 1977. He appeared in several films and television programs, including The Hollywood Palace, writing for The Pony Express, and The Private History of a Campaign That Failed. Then we'll move on to Janine Taylor, who plays Marcy. Janine's an American film, stage, and television actress. She's best known for her role of Marcy in Friday the 13th from 1981 to 19... Sorry, from 1980 to 1981. She portrayed the lead, Madame Chitani, in the off-Broadway production of Hijinks. And she's had roles in several stage productions, including The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Robert and Elizabeth. Then we'll move on to Lori Bartram as Brenda. Lori is an American actress and ballet dancer. She is perhaps best known for her role as Brenda in Friday the 13th. She also appeared in the soap opera Another World as a reoccurring character, Karen Campbell. And she was also in two episodes of the 1972 TV series Emergency. She also has uncredited appearance in the horror film The House of Seven Corpses as Debbie and then after Friday the 13th, she directed and choreographed local theater productions, made costumes for numerous productions, and did voice work for local businesses. And then she's also done numerous local commercials and billboards in Virginia. Then we will move on to one of the people that I always forget is in this when like thinking about this. Uh, Kevin Bacon plays the role of Jack. Kevin, of course, is an American actor. Um, his films include the musical drama film Footloose in 1984, controversial historical conspiracy legal thriller JFK in 1991, the legal drama A Few Good Men in 1992, Apollo 13 in 1995, Mystic River in 2003. He's also known for voicing the character of Balto in 1995. Um, he's also taken on darker roles in, such as Sleepers in 1996. He was in The Woodsman in 2004, National Lampoon's Animal House 1978, Diner, Tremors, Crazy Stupid Love, Flatliners, The River Wild, Wild Things, X-Men First Class, Patriot's Day, The Following, Black Mass. Kevin Bacon won the Golden Globe Award and the Screen Actors Guild Award and received a primetime Emmy nomination for the HBO film Taking Chances. He portrayed the title character and was the series lead of the Amazon Prime television series, I Love Dick, and he was also nominated for a Golden Globe Award for that. 
The Guardian named him one of the best actors never to receive an Academy Award nomination. In 2003, he received his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Then we'll move on to one of my personal favorite characters in the film, Ned. He's kind of the comedic character, big goofball, um, pretty much just does stuff for a laugh. Um, and I always enjoy characters like that. So he, Ned was played by Mark Nielsen. Mark's an American actor, director, and teacher. He appeared on Broadway in Angels in America, The Invention of Love, After the Fall, and Three Sisters. Um, he was also in A Few Good Men, Rumors, Amadeus, um, for his performance as Einstein and Steve Martin's Picasso at the Lapin Agi. He received the OB Drama League, Carbonell, and San Francisco Critics Award. He was in the National Tour of Cabaret and acted in Off-Broadway in My Name is Asher Leave, which he received a Lortel nomination. His other roles include Shylock and The Merchant of Venice at the Shakespeare Theater. So he's done tons of stuff um, in the theater. He's also been on Law & Order, Spin City, Unforgettable. He teaches acting at Princeton University and at New York City's HB Studio. He's directed at Manhattan Theater Club, Drama Department, McCarter Theater, George Street Playhouse. Tons and tons of acting, um, mostly stage, but huge list for stuff that he's done. Then we'll move on to Robbie Morgan, who plays Annie. Robbie made her movie debut playing the title character as a little girl in the touching drama Me, Natalie in 1969. She did a wickedly funny and dead-on impression of Mae West while singing the hysterically bawdy song Oh You Nasty Man as part of the talent show in Curtis Harrington's excellent Depression-era horror winner What's the Matter with Helen in 1971. She achieved her greatest enduring cult cinema popularity with her memorably sweet portrayal of bubbly and perky hitchhiking camp counselor Annie, of course, in Friday the 13th. Um, and then she's been in the movie Forbidden Love, I Married a Centerfold, and then she made guest appearances on the TV show The Fall Guy, and she performed stunts for the comedy feature The Great Outdoors. Besides her regrettably sparse film and TV credits, she acted on Broadway stage production for the musical comedy Barnum, which ran from 1980 to 1982. So those are kind of all of the camp counselors with the, of course, exclusion of Mrs. Voorhees. Um, and then we'll move on to Steve Christie, who's played by Peter. And Steve is kind of the, or he is the owner of the camp at the moment. So he's kind of the camp director. He's roughly about the same age as the counselors, maybe five years older. Um, but so he runs and owns the camp, is getting it ready to open again. He's known for Friday the 13th, Arthur, and One Life to Live. Then we will move on to the role of Enos. Enos is a truck driver. He gives Annie a ride part of the way to Camp Crystal Lake, and he's played by Rex Everhart. Rex is an American film and theater actor. He appeared in films such as Superman. Uh, he voiced Maurice in Beauty and the Beast, Belle's father. Uh, he performed in numerous roles on Broadway, including 1776, Chicago, Woman of the Year, and The Revival of Anything Goes, and he was nominated for a Tony Award in 1978 as Best Actor for his role in The Working. Then we will move on to Sergeant Tierney. 
We see Sergeant Tierney very briefly. He gives Steve a ride back to the camp or kind of gives him a ride back to the camp and um, we'll talk about him a little bit in the scene by scene so i added him uh, he's played by ron carroll and ron's an american actor known primarily for his work on broadway lots and lots of broadway people in this um tons of people got you know their start in this or um you know kind of added to their resume by doing friday the 13th so his career highlights include Oklahoma, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, two productions of Annie Get Your Gun. He appeared in the 1990 revival of Gypsy. His other Broadway credits include On Golden Pond, Crazy for You, and Steel Pier. He, his appearance at Lincoln Center include A Man of No Importance with Roger Reese, Room Service with John Lithgow, and Richard Thomas, Woody Allen's The Floating Light Bulb, and Carousel. Then we will move on to the character of Crazy Ralph. Um, so Ralph is kind of just a, they, everyone in town calls him Crazy Ralph. He gets drunk and kind of goes off on these um, spells, usually talking about the end of the world, um, cursing people, telling them they're doomed, sometimes being very religious. But Ralph is played by Walt, Walt Gorney. Walt was an Austrian-American actor, best known, of course, for playing Crazy Ralph, um, and then he was in Friday the 13th and then Friday the 13th Part 2. He returned to the series in Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, as the narrator. His other film credits include Heavy Traffic, King Kong, and Day of the Animals. So then we have two characters that are in the very beginning and then are not seen again they are the first kind of kills in friday the 13th so the first is barry and he's played by willie adams um best known for playing barry in friday the 13th um he died when he was really young sadly and he's known as the first ever character to be killed in the friday the 13th franchise then we'll move on to claudette who's played by deborah she's second to be killed um, and she's known for Friday the 13th and Coroner's Report. Then we have the role of Sandy, who is a waitress at the diner that Steve goes to. She's played by Sandy Ann Golden. Sally is known for Friday the 13th, Alice, Sweet Alice, and the Wanderers. And then last but not least, we have the role of Jason, who is played by Ari Lehman. Ari is an American performing artist, composer, and actor. He's known... He's best known for playing Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th, becoming the very first actor to portray the horror icon. Uh, he currently performs in a punk rock heavy metal band, First Jason, which is kind of a great name for a band. All right, now that we've met the cast, we can jump into the fun facts. There's quite a few for this one just because of how... Um, iconic it is and, and how much it kind of paved the way for so many of the franchises and horror films that we see today. The first fun fact is that the original inspiration was the film Halloween. In 1978, producer and director Sean Cunningham was looking for a model on which to build a commercially successful film, and he found one in John Carpenter's horror classic Halloween. The two films ultimately don't share much other than the very broad slasher tropes, but Cunningham says that he was very influenced by the structure of Carpenter's film. So, it all leads back to Halloween. No, just kidding. <laughs> Most of these lead back to Halloween. 
the film was being advertised before it even had financing, which when I was doing the research I found, and I thought that that was really interesting. So hoping to drum up publicity for his project, Cunningham took out an ad in the July 4th 1978 edition of Variety, featuring the film's now iconic logo bursting through the glass. At the time, the general structure of the film was in place, but Georgetown Productions had not yet fully agreed to finance it, and the advertised November 1978 release date was a pipe dream. Cunningham did get a response from the ad. Everybody wanted the film, so financing was pushed through. Originally, though, they had a different title in mind, um, Cunningham really quickly latched onto the idea of Friday the 13th as the title, even before the film got made. The screenwriter, Victor Miller, originally came up with something else. Um, in spring of 1979, he was calling the film Long Night at Camp Blood, which is a good title. I think Friday the 13th rolls off the tongue a little bit more. Long Night at Camp Blood is, it's a little choppy to me. Many of the special effects were baked in the camp's kitchen. Uh, So Tom Savini is now uh, a makeup effects legend, thanks in part to his work on Friday the 13th. Shout outs to Tom. In making the film, he and assistant Tsao Stavrakis actually ended up using the camp to finalize the special makeup effects. According to Savini, many of the latex appliances ultimately used to create the film's grotesque murders were baked in the pizza ovens at the camp where the movie was filmed. So... That's just called using your resources, and we applaud anyone who's smart enough to do so. Work smarter, not harder, as they say. The camp used for filming is still in operation, so Camp Crystal Lake is actually Camp Nobibosco, a fully operational camp that the cast and crew were granted access to after campers left for the summer in 1979, and it's still in use today. So like we mentioned in the cast, Kevin Bacon is on the cast, but you know, that that name rings huge bells for so many people because he's been in so many things. But at the time, he was not the film's biggest star. He hadn't done much prior to Friday the 13th, apart from small roles in Animal House. Um, the biggest name in the film was actually Harry Crosby, son of them recently deceased legendary singer Bing Crosby. Um, and of course, Harry played the role of Bill. So like I said, Betsy Palmer is played, or Betsy Palmer plays the role of Mrs. Voorhees, but originally Shelley Winters was the first choice. Cunningham and company went in search for an actress with a recognizable name whose career was nevertheless on the decline so that she could be played relatively little and the budget could stay low because, you know, the, the while the financing came through, um, when they pitched things, they needed to keep the budget low so that they could get the film greenlit in the first place financing-wise. So Cunningham eventually made a list of actresses he was considering, and two-time Oscar winner Shelley Winters was his top choice. Winters wasn't interested, and while fellow candidate and Oscar winner Estelle Parsons actually negotiated to be in the film, she ultimately backed out. Cunningham also considered actress Louise Lasser and Dorothy Malone right up until filming began, but ultimately the production wound up with Betsy Palmer. And she took the role, partly so that she could buy a new car. When Cunningham finally got around to offering Palmer the part of Miss Voorhees, she suddenly found herself in need of cash. After more than a year on Broadway, her car broke down as she drove back to her home in Connecticut. Um, She might never have taken the movie if she hadn't needed the money for a new car. She said in an interview, I got home at five in the morning and it was a situation where I desperately needed a new car. If I hadn't needed a car, I don't think I would have done Friday the 13th. We do interesting things when we're in a pickle. 
Um, but I'm very excited that she agreed to do it because I think she did a great job. Um, we'll talk about her acting when we get to the iconic end scenes. But I think that Palmer did amazing and I'm really happy that um, she was cast and she agreed to do it. But before Palmer was cast, several crew members ended up playing the killer. Even as filming got underway, Cunningham was still looking for actresses to play Mrs. Voorhees. So many of the early murder scenes were actually shot without Betsy, with members of the crew standing in for the hands of the murderer. For example, when Annie's throat is cut early in the film, it was actually special effects assistant Stavrakis as the one holding the knife. Betsy Palmer brought a lot to the role, and when she was finally cast, she really dove deep into the character. As a method actor, she wanted to know more about the character than the audience and came up with a backstory that built on the killer's hatred of sexual transgression. In her mind, Pamela had Jason out of wedlock with a high school boyfriend, and her parents ultimately disowned her for her sins because that isn't something that good girls do. In Victor Miller's original script, the character of Jason Voorhees was basically just a kid who accidentally drowned. But the financer wanted something more there. He brought in screenwriter Ron Kurtz for some rewrites. One of Ron's most important contributions to the film was to transform the tragic boy into the deformed child that we see in the final scene. So this one's kind of fun. The camp is situated deep in the New Jersey woods. Um, They didn't really have much outside interaction with people who weren't cast and crew, but they actually had a really famous neighbor, rock star Lou Reed. I guess he owned a farm nearby. And so he would go over and play for them and hang out. Um, He came to the set and Richard Murphy actually says, we got to watch Lou Reed play for free right in front of us while we were making the film. He came by the set and we hung around with each other and he was just a really great guy. So probably nice for him to have some interesting stuff going on in his backyard, kind of. Um, One actor was actually temporarily blinded by the fake blood. So for the scene in which Bill is killed by multiple arrows, one of which lands in his eye, Tom Savini used a fake blood formula that included a wedding agent called PhotoFlow, which was supposed to make the fake blood soak into clothing and look more realistic. Unfortunately, it's not an ingredient used for the safe blood, meaning blood that's not going to be encountering the face of an actor, you know, so it needs to have all of these precautions and things. For the arrow in the eye moment, a latex appliance was applied to Crosby's face along with the blood. But as the scene was shot, the blood welled up in Crosby's eye, causing an intense pain when the appliance was removed. So Savini is quoted by saying, Our unsafe blood had an opportunity to fill up Harry's eye under the appliance used to keep the arrow looking like it was in his eye. And its surface, and its surface burned poor Harry. Not a proud moment of mine. Crosby had to be taken to the hospital for treatment, but he was ultimately fine, thankfully. But I can't imagine how scary that that was. That was probably really, really sucky. So I think one of my favorite deaths in this is Kevin Bacon's, um, and his iconic death took hours to film, and it actually almost didn't work. Perhaps the most iconic death in the film occurs when Jack is killed with an arrow shoved through his throat from underneath the bed that he's lying on. It's so good with special effects. It's a great moment. It's super, super intense because you you see it all happening. Um, And there, you know, kind of sets the way for the shish kebabs that we see later in the franchise is kind of what I like to call them. When, you know, the counselors or the teenagers are impaled through something with something, if that makes sense. 
Um, like I said, brilliant special effects in the moment it was the most complex death scene to film. To make it work, Bacon had to crouch under the bed and insert his head through a hole in the mattress. Then a latex neck and chest appliance were attached to give the appearance that he was actually lying down. Getting the setup right took hours, and Bacon had to stay in that uncomfortable position the entire time. For the bloody final moment, Savini, also under the bed, would plunge the arrow up and through the fake neck, while his assistant, also under the bed, operated a pump that would make the fake blood flow up through the appliance. To further complicate things, the crew needed someone to stand in for the killer's hand as it held Bacon's head down, and they settled on still photographer Richard Fury. Which, like, these beds are not big, and you've got three people underneath the bed absolutely bonkers after hours of setup and latex building and planning it was finally time to shoot the scene and when the moment of truth came the hose for the blood pump disconnected knowing that he basically had only one take otherwise they'd have to build a new latex appliance and set everything up again he grabbed the hose and blew into it until the blood flowed saving the scene he's quoted as saying i just had to think quick so i grabbed the hose and blew like crazy which thankfully caused the arterial blood spray the blood didn't taste that bad either, thankfully, which I, that's good thinking on his part. Cause you, you know, you hear those stories and I think we've all been in those situations where something happens and we just kind of do stuff. And then later we're like, Oh, it's a good, good thing. I just kind of like acted instead of panicking. Um, but that would have been really sucky after all of that set up for that scene to not work how they wanted it to. So then one of the last fun facts we have is that the final scare was supposedly not in the original script. So the story of who invented the final scare in the film in which the deformed Jason bursts out of the lake and grabs Alice from her canoe is disputed. Victor, Tom, and uncredited screenwriter Ron all claim credit for it. Um, Ron, because he claims to be the one who made Jason into a creature. Savini, because he claims the moment was inspired by a similar final scare in Carrie. Whatever the case, it's great and definitely leaves a really good final kick to the movie. The main theme music came from a line of dialogue. I'm sure this is very iconic if you know. It's the... When composing the score for the film, composer Harry Manfredini was looking for a distinctive sound to identify any point when the killer appeared in a scene. When he first saw a print of the film, he heard Mrs. Voorhees imitating Jason saying, kill her mommy and decided that was the key so he took two syllables from the line of dialogue spoke them himself and made the iconic sound manfredini is quoted as saying so i got the idea of taking the ki from kill and the ma from mommy but spoke them very harshly distinctly and rhythmically into a microphone and then run them through the 70s echo thing it came up as you hear it today so every time there was this perspective of stalker i put that into the score which i think really adds to it it's very uncomfortable makes the scenes very um tense and then the last fun fact we have is that the screenwriter hates the sequels. One of the key twists of the original film, particularly in light of its many sequels, counting a crossover with A Nightmare on Elm Street and a reboot, there are 11 Friday the 13ths now, is that Jason is not actually the central figure. He provides a haunting mythology, but the real villain is his mother. For screenwriter Victor Miller, this was very important, and he framed Pamela Voorhees as the mother he never had, a woman who tirelessly professed love in her own crazy way. When the film became a hit, and the inevitable sequel featured Jason as the new killer, Miller was ultimately disappointed. 
He's quoted as saying, to be honest, I have not seen any sequels, but I have a major problem with all of them because they made Jason the villain. I still believe that the best part of my screenplay was the fact that the mother figure was the serial killer, working from a horribly twisted desire to avenge the senseless death of her son, Jason. Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim, not a villain, but I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that that was great fun. Miss Voorhees was the mother I always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. And the last fun fact is that filming lasted 28 days, which I think uh, is pr- pretty good timing. Uh, you know, of course, they were all on camp. They all lived there. So probably pretty easy to uh, probably many long nights, but probably pretty easy to get things done fairly fast. Now that we've met the cast and we know the fun facts, we can get into the scene by scene breakdown. We open with a gorgeous shot of the moon and we can hear kids singing. We are on the lake, and it is 1958. The camp counselors are singing in one of the cabins. We get a great point-of-view shot walking into one of the cabins, and we get the... The intruder is looking at the kids sleeping in their cots. The intruder makes their way through the cabin and into one of the closets. Now we see the counselors all singing together again. The song ends, and two of the counselors go off together. This would be Claudette and Barry. We get another shot of the moon, and the two counselors go into a storage area and go upstairs to make out and have sex. The intruder is now going up the stairs to where Barry and Claudette are. They're making out, and Claudette hears someone on the stairs, and Barry looks embarrassed. The intruder ends up stabbing Barry and then goes after Claudette. She's running, and she's trying to throw things, but the camera slows, and she screams, and then we freeze. The camera zooms into her mouth, the screen goes white, and then black, And then the Friday the 13th grows closer on the screen and shatters it. Our opening credits start and we get a great music intro, lots of minor string action going on, very, very tense, and of course the iconic... The screen goes white and then we are in a town. We see a girl walking with a huge backpack. It is Friday the 13th in the present, which would be 1980 in June. The town seems small, very empty. The girl passes a gas station and pets a very cute dog. She asks the dog how to get to Camp Crystal Lake. She gives the dog one last pat and keeps going. She goes into a diner and asks how far to Camp Crystal Lake. Someone says it's about 20 miles. Enos, the truck driver, offers to take her halfway, and we learn that her name is Annie. A man named Ralph comes and says that Camp Blood has a death curse. Enos gets Ralph away, tells Annie not to pay any attention to him. Annie gets in the truck, and we see Ralph ride off on his bicycle. Eno says that Ralph's been causing trouble for Annie's boss, talking all that nonsense. They end up driving, and we see shots of the truck going. We learn that Annie will be the cook at the camp. Enos asks if she knows what happened. She says no, and then encourages him to tell her. He says she should quit. He tells her two kids were murdered in 1958 and a kid drowned in 1957. And then there's also been a bunch of fires. Eno says, again, that she should quit. She says, no, I'm not a quitter. And he calls her a dumb kid. He drops her off at the cemetery because he needs to keep going straight and she needs to go left. And she starts walking. We now see a car with three people inside, two guys and a girl. They're joking around about the camp. We see them pull into camp, and as they approach, we see a man cutting a tree stump. The three teenagers get out and help the guy who's 
cutting up the stump. Alice comes out. We meet her. She's already there. She's cleaning. We find out that Steve was the one who was cutting the roots of the stump. And then we meet Jack, Marcy, and Ned, who were the three teenagers in the car. So, like I mentioned, Steve is the owner. Jack, Marcy, Ned, and Alice are counselors. Steve asks Alice where Bill is. Bill's another counselor. She says she hasn't seen him, and she says she hasn't seen Brenda either, which is another counselor. Steve wants them to get started right away, and Jack makes the comment, I thought we have like two weeks to get things ready. So they've got plenty of time before kids and families start showing up. Alice shows them where they can change so that they can get to work on cleaning and making things ready. Steve helps Alice hang up some gutters, and he finds, like, her sketchbook and looks through it. Um, He says that she draws really well. He finds a drawing of him. They kind of flirt a little bit, and then Steve can tell that she's not really happy at the camp, and she kind of agrees. She's like, yeah, this kind of isn't what I was expecting. I don't know if this is really for me, and he asks her to give it a week. He's like, give it a week. If you still don't like it after a week, you can go. She says, okay, she agrees to, to try and wait it out a week. Alice goes down by the lake. She finds Bill, and she asks Bill if they need more paint. He says that he thinks that they have enough paint, but they need a little bit more paint thinner, and he asks if the other people have shown up. She says yes, and she goes to Steve because he's going to go into town to pick up things that everyone needs, and he also gives everyone their tasks of what they should be doing while he's gone. Brenda is now setting up the archery area, and she's almost hit with an arrow. Ned ends up shooting an arrow at her because he thinks that it would be funny. He clearly thinks that she's pretty and just kind of messes with her a lot. They flirt a little bit. She jokingly chases him with an arrow. The two of them are laughing. Seems like good fun. We see Annie walking to camp, and a jeep picks her up. She says she's going to Camp Crystal Lake, and she's talking with the driver, but we never see the driver. The driver seems to be driving very quickly, though. Annie's talking about how she's always wanted to work with kids. The driver flies past the road that the camp is down. And Annie's like, hey, I think that that was the road we needed to go down. The the driver doesn't say anything, just keeps driving. Annie looks really nervous. Annie suggests that they stop, but the driver keeps going. Annie still looks nervous. The music becomes a lot more intense. The driver speeds up, and Annie's now begging. She ends up jumping out of the moving Jeep, and the driver backs up and gets out of the car and goes after Annie. Annie runs. The driver chases her into the woods. Annie keeps falling down. She keeps getting up. She's running. The music stops, and we think that Annie's home free. Then the killer is in front of her. Annie falls down. Annie looks up at the killer and just keeps saying no. She stands up, and the killer then slashes Annie's throat. Now everyone at the camp is finishing putting the dock together, They take a break and swim a little bit and relax. The killer watches from the shore. They finish up and are going to get back to work, but Ned starts yelling for help from the water. Everyone jumps in to save him. Brenda and Jack specifically dive in the water. Brenda does this beautiful dive, like absolutely flawless. Jack's dive, not as great, but I'll give it like a 6 out of 10. They end up pulling Ned from the water. And Brenda goes to give him mouth-to-mouth because he's, like, not responding to anything they're saying. He's not moving. And then he was faking the whole time. And he, like, grabs Brenda and starts, like, kissing her. And they all yell at him, and they're laughing. And now we see Alice is in her cabin getting changed. 
there's a snake next to her dresser and she yells for Bill to come in and kill it. And Bill's like, I don't know what to do. And she's like, well, just kill it. Like, I can't sleep in here with the snake. The others hear the shouting and they come inside to see what's going on. They're all looking for the snake. And they're like falling over each other when they think they see it. They look under the bed. The snake won't come out. They end up trashing the cabin. Like Jack jumps on the bed to get the snake to come out. And they're like throwing things around. Bill finally kills the snake. But now someone's going to have to clean up Alice's cabin because it's a total mess. And she had actually had it looking pretty good. Next, we see Brenda and Marcy are talking about what to cook for dinner as they're walking back to the main camp area. We see a police officer pull up on a motorcycle. He's very rude and accuses Jack of being high. And, of course, Ned, being the jokester, uh, makes a terrible first impression. He's got this, like, headdress on. And it's, it's not it's not a good look for him. Um, he's, he's trying to be funny, but it just doesn't, it doesn't hit, and the police officer is not having it. The officer explains to the counselors that he is looking for Crazy Ralph. The officer ends up getting a call, and he has to go back. And he's like, if you don't keep things clean, I'm going to be back up here. We won't stand for any weirdness. He leaves, and now we see Alice in the kitchen cleaning, organizing. She opens the pantry, and Crazy Ralph is in there. He says she's doomed if she stays. She screams. Jack and Marcy come in, and Ralph says that the place is cursed. He tells them they're doomed if they stay. Ralph leaves on his bike, and Alice watches from the doorway. Now everyone is preparing dinner together. They can't get the light in the kitchen to turn on, and Jack says that Steve taught him how to run the emergency generator. Jack, Brenda, and Bill go to start the generator up. It powers on without a problem, and all the lights turn on. It's getting dark outside, and we see Marcy and Jack are by themselves, being all coupley and cute. Um, you know, they're, like, playing around by the water and hugging each other and kissing, and Ned is watching them from afar, looking very lonely. He's whistling, he's walking by a bunch of canoes, and we see the killer by one of the cabins. Ned goes to talk with them and asks if he can help them. He goes in the cabin, and then we cut away back to Jack and Marcy, coming toward that same area. They share a kiss, and she says that Ned's been acting like a jerk. Of course, remember, the three of them all came up together, so they all knew each other prior. And then as Marcy and Jack are talking about Ned and kind of his attitude, um, a storm starts and lightning and thunder start. Marcy says that she's scared of storms. She has reoccurring nightmares about a storm. She says it's really loud, and then the rain turns to blood. Jack says it can't hurt her because it's just a dream, and Jack says they should probably go inside because it's now fully dark, the wind is picking up, and the storm is only going to get worse. Jack and Marcy make it inside a cabin and start making out. They get ready to have sex, and Jack lights a candle, and they start making out again. Now we are in a different cabin with Alice, Bill, and Brenda. Bill is playing guitar, and Alice opens the door to see if she can see Jack or Marcy. Brenda says they should play Monopoly, only not regular Monopoly, strip Monopoly. So instead of paying rent, you pay with your clothes. Brenda tells Alice to see if Marcy left any weed lying around. Alice goes to look, and they get the game set up. We cut back to Jack and Marcy. They're having sex, and they're on the bottom bunk of, like, a bunk bed. The camera pans to the top bunk, and Ned is laying in the bed, dead. Marcy gets up to pee and has to leave the cabin to do so. We flash back to the others, and they're playing Monopoly and drinking. Jack lights a cigarette, and then blood drips on his head. 
As he's like realizing what it is and goes to get out of bed, the killer grabs his head from under the bed so he like you know, so he's like held down against the bed and they run an arrow through Jack's throat. Marcy has made it to the bathroom now. The killer followed her there though. We hear the k- 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 We pan under the stall doors and see Marcy's feet and a flashlight. She hears a noise, and at first she thinks it's Jack. She goes to wash her hands, uh, but the water won't work. She looks underneath and is able to get the water to turn on. I think the main valve line just needed to be, like, twisted. The camera gets closer, zooms in. We hear another noise. Marcy's getting worried and calls for Ned. She thinks that they're just all kind of playing a joke on her. She turns on a light and goes into the shower area. She opens one stall, and there's no one there. And the next one is empty as well. Behind Marcy, when she's looking in the second shower stall, we see the shadow of an axe behind her. And when she turns, we see the axe head up in the air. Marcy screams and the axe comes down. A second later, we see Marcy fall to the ground with the axe in her face. Such a great scene. Very iconic. So now we've lost Ned, Jack, and Marcy all in the course of 10 minutes, probably. The rest are playing Monopoly, and Bill is clearly losing. Alice, I would say, is winning since she has the most clothes on. The door flies open due to the wind, and they all get scared. Brenda realizes that she thinks she left the windows in her cabin open. They decide to end the game for now. They'll pick it up again a different night. Brenda leaves, and we see her running through the rain. Now we flash to a diner. We see Sandy working. She's talking with Steve. He was just finishing up dinner and his coffee. Steve chats with Sandy and pays his tab and gets ready to leave. He gets in his Jeep and heads back to camp. It's pouring down rain. Super dark, thunder, lightning. We see him driving in the rain, and he passes the Crystal Lake 12-mile sign. And now we're back with Brenda. She's in the bathroom, same bathroom that Marcy was in, and she's dressed in this, like, amazing raincoat, absolutely gorgeous. It's like, this like, it's not like lime, I guess it is kind of lime green, I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful raincoat. She brushes her teeth, and the camera does the same zoom motion that it did on Marcy. They were at, like, the same exact sink in the same bathroom, and we flash to the showers and back to Brenda. We hear rattling, and Brenda looks over at the showers She kind of waits for a second, and then she puts on her hood to leave and go back outside. Steve's Jeep dies, and thankfully, a police car comes to his rescue. The police officer agrees to drive him back to the camp. We see Brenda in her cabin, and someone is watching her from the window. She's in this pink robe, and she lights a candle in the room. She turns out the lantern, and she's getting ready for bed. From the window, we see her sit on the bed and put the candle in the windowsill. She lays on the bed and pulls out a book, and then we hear someone... Sounds like a child saying, help me. Brenda looks up and listens, but hears nothing and looks back at her book. Then we hear the help me call again. She looks up and gets out of the bed. She gets her flashlight and goes outside on the deck of the cabin. She says hello, and then the child answers back. She runs out after the voice, and she just keeps saying hello, hello. We hear wind and thunder. The voice keeps saying, come quickly, help, come quickly. She asks where the person is and continues to look. She's now by the archery course, and we see someone open the light box and turn on the lights in the area. It blinds Brenda, and she yells, Okay, come out like it's not funny anymore. She looks really frightened. She's now soaking wet. 
We jump back to Alice's cabin and we hear screaming. Alice sits by the fire and picks up Bill's guitar. She strums a little bit and then gets up and adds more wood to the fire. The door opens and it's Bill. He went to check on the generator. Alice says she heard a scream and it sounded like Brenda and she saw the lights come on at the archery range. Bill says he better go take a look. He goes to the window to look, but the lights are off now. He and Alice decide they should still go check it out just to make sure everything's okay. Alice is in a yellow raincoat and Bill is in this large orange poncho. They get to Brenda's cabin, but they don't find Brenda. But they do find a slightly bloody axe on her pillow, all tucked in under the blankets. Alice asks what's going on, and Bill tells Alice to come on, and they leave. They go to Jack's cabin, and it's empty as well. Bill and Alice now go to the bathroom, and it's empty. Alice says that they should call someone. They leave the bathroom and go to the main office of the camp. They don't have a key, but Alice breaks a window to unlock the door. They get inside and turn on the light. The camera pans down and we see them through the window. The phone won't work, probably because of the storm. There is a payphone and they do have the change for it, but it is also dead. They try and start Bill's truck, but it's too wet and won't turn on. Alice says they should just hike, they should just leave, but Bill says it's over 10 miles. He says they should wait for Steve, everything's going to be fine. He's like, tomorrow we're just going to laugh about this, it's okay, it's going to be fine. He gives her a kiss on the cheek, and we see the police car driving. Officer Tierney is talking about the full moon and the stats and how full moon brings out crazy people, which it does. Like, if you've ever worked in healthcare or retail and worked the evening shift or any of those types of things, the full moon thing is real. All the shit happens on the full moon. I always hated... I don't know if hated is the right word, but I always dreaded going to work on full moon nights when I worked with adjudicated youth um, in like the residential program that I worked because there was always just lots of paperwork to do that night because the, the guys were always grumpy and mean and trying to start shit. And we usually always had people run on full moons, which was really interesting, which meant we had to call the police and warrants had to go out and like we had to do those paperwork and oh my gosh, full moons were rough there were many many a full moons that i was supposed to get off work at 11 at night many a full moons where i was there till two in the morning trying to finish up paperwork and do stuff steve and tierney are talking about ralph and tierney says that they found him and they were able to get him home then we hear a call come over his radio that there's a car accident he needs to drop steve off in the road kind of where they're at so that he can go check on this wreck Thankfully, the rain has now stopped. We see the iconic Camp Crystal Lake sign swaying in the wind, and Steve is now jogging. He then starts walking and is blinded by a flashlight. He says, hi, what are you doing out in this mess? And then he's attacked. We see an image of the still lake. We are now moving toward the shed with the generator. The power goes out, and Bill gets two lanterns going, one for him and one for Alice. Alice asks what happened, and he said the generator's probably out of gas. Alice is going to nap on the couch, and Bill's going to check the generator, and he'll be right back. He leaves her, and she looks so peaceful on the couch. Like, she just, it's so calm. The camera zooms in to Alice, and then we are outside with Bill. He arrives at the shed and goes inside. He checks the generator and can't get it turned back on. He checks the fuel, but he can't really see inside of the tank because it's dark, so he sticks, like, a pole in it, but it's totally full of gas. He plays with it, and we zoom in on Bill. He gets the lantern, and then Alice is waking up yelling Bill's name. 
she takes her lantern and goes into the kitchen. She lights the stove and puts on the kettle. I love the lighting in this scene because the lantern gives just enough. It's really soft, very kind of comforting almost, even though there's all this craziness going on. It's a really good contrast in my opinion. We follow her around the kitchen as she's making instant coffee for her and Bill. She goes into the pantry and gets sugar and adds it to the cups. It's so quiet. Like, there's no music, no other noise going on, just her kind of lightly rummaging through the kitchen. She's now outside yelling for Bill. She's in her yellow raincoat again, and she finds his poncho in the generator shed. She can't find him inside. She closes the door to the shed and he is dead on the door, stuck with arrows, just like all these arrows. Kind of like that scene in Halloween where uh, Michael sticks the guy to the door in like the French door area. And so he's like off the ground. That's kind of what's going on with Bill with all these arrows. Alice screams and runs into the dark. She gets into a cabin and can't figure out how to make sure the door can't open from the outside. She's crying. She starts tying the knob with rope. She shuts the curtains. She's putting logs in front of the door. She's doing everything she can think of to block this door so that no one can get in. She stops for a moment and grabs a baseball bat that was lying by the door. She doesn't close the curtains for one of the windows, though. She makes her way into the kitchen to look for other weapons. She proceeds to close the kitchen curtains and leans against the fridge, but then Brenda's body is thrown into one of the windows that she hadn't closed the curtains yet. Brenda is dead and all wrapped up in these ropes, and poor Alice freaks out. She shrinks down, and the music gets more intense. Alice drops the bat and crawls around Brenda. She's shrieking and crying. Her jacket gets caught, and she just ends up taking it off. She sees lights outside, and Steve's Jeep pulls up. But we know, sadly, Steve was attacked. Alice runs to the Jeep, and we see a woman get out of the car. Alice asks who she is, and she says her name's Mrs. Voorhees, and she's an old friend of the Christie's, which is kind of Steve's family. Alice hugs her and cries. Mrs. Voorhees comforts her, and Alice says that everyone's dead. Alice is like, you have to help me. And Mrs. Voorhees is like, no, you're fine. It's okay. Everything's okay. It's just this place. It's just the storm. And Miss Voorhees says that she's going to go have a look. She says she's not afraid, and she goes into the cabin. Alice follows her, and Mrs. Voorhees seems really shocked to see Brenda. She's like, what monster could have done this? Mrs. Voorhees says, this place, why did Steve open this again? Um, She tells Alice that a young boy drowned two years before the other couple was killed. She said the counselors weren't paying attention. Mrs. Voorhees is getting upset, and she says the boy's name was Jason. Mrs. Voorhees explains that she was the cook, and Jason should have been watched. She grabs Alice and then, like, like aggressively, and then kind of pulls her in a little bit and, like, and then just, like, gently kind of, like, strokes her hair. Alice says that they should wait for Steve, and we get a close-up of Mrs. Voorhees as she's seeing Jason drown in the lake, and he's screaming, help me, mommy. She looks off into the distance, and she says, oh, Jason, I am. Mrs. Voorhees finally reveals that Jason was her son, and today is his birthday. And she couldn't let them open that place again. My sweet, innocent Jason, my only child Jason, you let him drown. You didn't pay attention. Look what you did. She comes at Alice with the knife, and Alice is able to knock Mrs. Voorhees down and run. Alice runs to the Jeep, but Annie is dead in the passenger seat. Alice freaks and then continues to keep running. Steve's body then drops in front of her, dead. 
Alice screams again, and now Mrs. Voorhees is up and out of the cabin. Mrs. Voorhees goes looking for Alice. She sees her running and in a high-pitched voice says, Kill her, Mommy. Kill her. Don't let her live. And Mrs. Voorhees answers, I won't, Jason. I won't. Alice goes into, like, this garage-looking building and starts looking for a weapon. Mrs. Voorhees turns the generator back on, and Alice has found a shotgun, but no bullets. Mrs. Voorhees finds her and says it will be easier for you than it was for Jason. Mrs. Voorhees pulls the gun away, and we get a great camera shot. Mrs. Voorhees slaps Alice many times. We get amazing close-ups of both of them. Alice is now fighting back and punches Mrs. Voorhees and runs. Mrs. Voorhees comes to and gets up to follow Alice. She walks past this, like, stage area and is kind of, like, in the foreground, and then we see Alice pop up in the background who is hiding behind the stage, and Alice ends up going back the way that Mrs. Voorhees came. We see the full moon, and Mrs. Voorhees is doing the Jason voice again. Kill her, mama. You gotta find her, that whole thing. Alice goes back into the main cabin and turns out the lights. So this is the main cabin with, like, the kitchen where Brenda was, that whole thing. She hides in the pantry, and we hear the door open and footsteps. Alice tries to stay quiet, and we see the kitchen light turn on. Alice is holding the door closed, and we see Mrs. Voorhees walk by a few times looking for her. Alice hears her leave and takes a break from holding the door. However, we see the doorknob over Alice's head move, and Mrs. Voorhees is trying to break the door down. She breaks in, and they fight some more. Alice hits her again, and Mrs. Voorhees goes down. But this time, her head is bleeding. Alice walks away looking at Mrs. Voorhees and then quickly leaves the cabin. Alice makes her way to the lake and sits down. We watch from afar, and then we see her reflection in the water. Mrs. Voorhees is now behind Alice and goes to hit her with an oar. They fight some more. They both land hits on each other. They roll around in the sand. Mrs. Voorhees chokes Alice. Alice is then able to get away and is trying to crawl away. Both are trying very hard. Alice trying to get away. Mrs. Voorhees trying to kill Alice. Alice is able to get up and grab a machete that was on the ground. We see a slow motion shot of Alice bringing the blade up. Mrs. Voorhees looking shocked, and the blade swings, and Miss Voorhees is decapitated. Alice smiles lightly, and we see the moon again. She gets into a canoe and falls asleep on the lake until morning. Now we see her in the canoe, and it's daytime. She has one hand out of the boat, and cheerful music is playing. We see a police car come up, and two officers get out. One calls for her from the shore, and she wakes up. As she looks around, we zoom in, and then a child-sized-looking monster comes up and out of the water and grabs Alice, tipping the boat and pulling her under. We pan away and over the water, and now Alice wakes up in the hospital, screaming. The doctors comfort her. They give her a sleeping agent. A police officer lets her know that her parents are coming, and she asks about her friends. The officer confirms everyone died. She's the only survivor. The officer asks if she remembers much, and she asks about Jason. She's like, what about the little boy? And he's like, there was no boy. Like, we pulled you out of the lake on your own. Like, there, there was no boy. She says, he must still be there then, and looks off camera. We fade from her face to the lake looking very peaceful, and then we fade to black. And that is the end of Friday the 13th. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I love this one so much and always try to watch it on Friday the 13th if I can. Um, I think right now it's on Paramount if you have Paramount. So if you want to check it out this evening or this weekend, since it's Friday the 13th, go give it a watch. 
Um, next week for the podcast, we are going to do Smile, which I'm very excited about. That was one of my favorite movies of last year that came out. So super pumped to see that one. Um, I haven't seen Megan yet. I'm really, really excited to see that one. They're not playing it at my local theater until I think like the 19th. Um, so if I don't get a chance to go to the bigger city that's like an hour away between now and then. Um, I won't get to see that one for a little bit, but next week we're going to do Smile, which I'm super pumped about. Um, if you want to see what the podcast is up to on social media, kind of see what I'm reading, see what movies I'm watching, that sort of stuff. Um, I have the podcast on Twitter and Instagram under M Murder Movies. So that's M as in Massacre Murder Movies on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I hope that you have a lovely day or night whenever you're listening to this. And happy Friday the 13th. If you're going out to do stuff tonight, remember to stay safe and stay spooky.